All right, why don't you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, verse by verse. Peter has um, focused on the believer's conduct towards the hostile unbeliever in view of their salvation, chapter 2, 11 through 4, 6. He makes it very clear that we as a church, as believers, are here for the lost. It's a very important fact. Peter now focuses on the believer's conduct towards other believers in expectation of the Lord's soon return, the culmination of their salvation to an extent in chapter 4, 7 through 11. In 1 through 6, you have the way they were not to live in the negative, and then the way they were to live in the positive 7 through 11. You as a parent taught your children, and so did I many times. You taught them by the negative example of others, and then you taught them the positive way to get the best out of life. And that follows in the spiritual realm also. So as Peter focuses on the believer's conduct in the spirit towards other believers, it falls in these two sections, verse 7 through 11. In 7, you have the constant spiritual mindset of the believer in the relationship to Jesus Christ. We saw that this morning very specifically, living living in expectation of the soon return. The soon return of Jesus for the church is imminent. He can come at any time. For him to come the second time, many things still have to happen during the tribulation and great tribulation. Okay? But his coming for the church is imminent. And then, of course, living in manifestation of being one with Christ. We are to be light. We are to be salt. And so the constant... Um, spiritual mindset of the believer from 8 to 11 deals with the relationship to the saints. Um, the vertical, again, is the most important. That affects the horizontal. Sometimes people may say, how are you doing? And you say, oh, yeah, great, this and that. But even though you may say you're doing great or I'm saying I'm doing great, if I'm not right with God, I'm going to have a very difficult time with relationships on the horizontal level because of the conviction and everything else that goes on, I know that I'm not living the way I'm supposed to. You know, just like when you're children, you know, they do something and they say, hey, what are you doing? You go, what, what, what am I doing? Because, you know, they're up to something. And they think they got busted. It's the same thing when we're not right with God. And so um, he's already touched the conduct towards um, each other earlier in chapter 3. So let's begin here, chapter 4, verse 7 through 11, the believer's conduct towards others, believers, um, in the expectation of the Lord's soon return uh, to finalize their salvation. Verse 7 is the spiritual mindset of the believer here in view of the return. The perspective of hope, notice in verse 7, regarding the uh, nearness of the Lord's return, but the end of all things is at hand. The gospel has been um, preached to those um, who were physically alive in the previous uh, verses, and they had died. They're no longer there. Now they're with the Lord. But uh, their repentant state um, demonstrated that they had their lives turned around uh, and they believe and verify that hope of his coming to be validated. And they died in expectation of his coming. And their death physically only allowed them to go before the presence of God. Second Corinthians 5, 1 through 8 makes that very clear. Those that were still alive, they had the same hope. Um, you know, we, we just buried Joe and others uh, this early this year. And they're with the Lord. We're still alive here, and we have the same hope. 
theirs has been realized face to face with Jesus. We're looking for that. Either it's coming or death. And so the word but here uh, is a continuous conjunction, uh, not a contrasting one. Could be translated moreover. Um, and the desire of Peter was to strengthen the believer here because, you know, they're under persecution. Um, taking their mind off the spiritual opposition right now a little bit and placing them on the, uh, on the focus on the final goal, his coming for them, okay? When someone is in trouble or someone is hurt, you say, hang on, hang on, we almost got you there. You see some of those EMT uh, uh, documentaries live and, or the policemen, and they get on the scene and they try to calm the person, give them hope. Hey, you're okay, don't freak out. Just look at me, you're in good hands, we're going to take care of you. That allows hopefulness. This is what Peter is doing here. And so the statement by the end of all things at hand was the source of their persevering hope under persecution. And so once again, the vertical axis affects the horizontal plane. This is the transitional verse um, for their persevering hope uh, to live in the spirit in the midst of hostile unbelievers and with holy brethren that goes on. It's kind of a sweet sour. It's kind of a two-way street uh, as we live here. The eschatological theme, eschatology means the study of end things, has been repeated and mentioned several times in 1 Peter. It's full of it. Uh, 1 5, 1 7, 1 13, 2 12, 4 5, 17 18, 5 1 and 4. It's all over. Not to mention um, um, the the others that are found, but those are just some of them. And so the finality of their persecutions and sufferings by hostile words and deeds, um, both blasphemies and uh, false accusations. Um, some of you have received false accusations by some of your family members, sometimes some friends, sometimes they were your best of friends in the world. And all of a sudden you came to the Lord and you became like an enemy. Like you became the creeping crud, you know what I mean? It's just, uh, it's just drastic changes. Now, I'm not saying this happens all the time to everybody, but as you look to the church history, especially the first century, there was radical, radical response against believers, especially if you were Jewish. If you were Jewish, they, they considered you dead. They had a funeral for you. Today, if an uh, Orthodox Jew, if they uh, become a completed Jew or they accept Jesus Christ, whatever phrase you want to use, their uh, Orthodox family will have a funeral for them. They are as dead. It's an amazing thing. And so uh, the phrase all things has the article with it and refers to two things, the, um, the world of ungodly uh, individuals and the world of the reign of Satan. It will come to an end. It will be finalized. And the time of the end, again here indicated, is synonymous with the phrase at hand, end and at hand. Literally, it says, has drawn near. And the New Testament is full of uh, the, the hope of his coming. Uh, Romans 13, um, 11 through 12, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 20, many, many others. Uh, we're to be looking for Jesus. We're to be living in such a way that when people accuse us falsely, we're to prove them wrong by a manner of conduct. Um, sometimes God would have us to respond. Other times, um, uh, he would have us to not respond. The proverb says, answer a fool according to his folly. And then it says, answer not a fool according to his folly. Is that a contradiction? No. 
God will give you the wisdom when you respond to somebody who needs to be rebuked according to their foolish words. And then at other times, the silence is a greater rebuke to them. And you have to ask the Lord the wisdom when to speak and when not to speak. Very, very important. And so, Peter, notice, didn't try to set some date. Be careful of people that try to set dates. So many people from the 70s on started doing their little mathematics about a generation, 40 years, and they started subtracting from when the, the Jews took Israel over in 1967 with the Wailing Wall, and they started doing their math, and, you know, crazy. This guy wrote 88 reasons why Jesus is coming back, and he was wrong the date. And, I mean, there's people put dates and dates and dates. People put a date and get away from them. Get away from them. And so, in seven, still the practical and steadfastness and the mindset of the believer is about the end of the end being at hand. Therefore, he says we're to be serious. Uh, serious, speaking about sober-minded, um, pointing back again to what precedes the end of all things. Um, thinking clearly, uh, level-headed. Now, you can do that in, in calmness, um, and most people are okay. It's under pressure under anxiety, under danger, then that mind and that stability is tested. Uh, everybody can do pretty good behind the wheel. But you get somebody that has to slam the brakes on and know how to turn that wheel and where to go. Uh, there's some that do real good and others that don't. <laughs> and, and they've both been driving 40, 50 years, okay? And so we, we have to make sure that we're looking to the Lord and we're dealing with things clear-headed. The tense, again, is the imperative eris, something that uh, occurred in the past that is to be going on in the present. And so as we continue to walk with God, we are to grow, we're to develop, we're to mature, we're to learn from our own life, life of others and um, continue to depend on, on the Lord over and over again. Um, the believers to be known for clear thinking then level-headed and discretion, moderation and discipline. Um, now, you can have discipline... Um, in the world due to regimentation, um, go through athletics or military, stuff like that. But the discipline of the believer comes from within. Okay? As Paul says, I don't need a law anymore. I needed the law before, but the problem with the law is that it accused me I was guilty. I would not know I, I shouldn't covet until it said, I shall not covet. And then that very law provoked me to want to covet. Now that I'm born again, I don't need an external law. I know what's right and wrong. And so discipline from within spiritually is far different than being um, regimented through some behavioral modification that the sciences do, whether it be sociology, psychology, and they tell you about all your dysfunctional family, codependence, enablers, and they give you all this new vocabulary. So now you have a lot of ammunition, ammunition to explain why you are the way you are, and it's not your fault. You're a victim. Shut up. No victim. But that's man because he's being against the wrong premise. Here's the premise of man. Man is good. Here's the Bible's premise. Man is good for nothing. Okay? When you begin with the right premise, you'll end up with the right conclusion. When you begin with the wrong premise, though your observation may be accurate, your conclusion will be wrong every time. So you want to make sure that you agree with the Bible's premise, which is absolute revelation. There's not one good thing in us. And so we agree with God. 
he can fix us. And that's what it's all about. And so this includes watchful, being watchful. And you go on to connect that with prayer. Once again, the imperative heiress, something in the past that should be going on now. Um, again, by the Spirit of God. None of us can do this on our own. It's by being filled with the Spirit continually. A watchful simply means literally to abstain from intoxicating drink. And there's a correlation there even as uh, Paul tells in Ephesians 5.18, uh, be not drunken with wine in excess or dissipation, but be you filled with the Spirit of God. Keep on keeping on a, a continuous present. And so we all understand what it is to be drunk. The more you drink, the more you don't, can't pronounce what's right, the more you stumble, you get up real fast, whatever, and then you start acting stupid and say stupid things because you come under the influence of that depressant. Alcohol is not a stimulus, it's a depressant. And so the same way we're to do now with the Spirit, we're to hand ourselves over to the Spirit to control our conduct, our speech, our manner of life. That is going to be the best for us. Whatever we yield to that is going to be the fruit of God. Just as we yielded to the influence of alcohol, it brought forth nothing but death and destruction. Nothing good ever happens with drinking. Nothing at all. Let alone the long term, cirrhosis of the liver and arteriosclerosis and billions of brain cells that you'll never get back that are gone and everything else. And so here again, um, the watchfulness, vigilance, marked with a cool head. Uh, the word appears five other times in the New Testament, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 6, and 8, and 2 Timothy 4, 5, and others. And so um, the personal confidence and mindset of the believer there in 7 still believes uh, the believer is qualified by the end of all things once again, and he makes it personal in your prayers, okay? So the watchfulness connected to the prayers. Sometimes we, the most time that we connect prayers is to what we hear. And though that is true in itself, but prayer causes us to see things clearly, to understand things clearly, and they're always tied together that way. Um, serious, sound-minded, clear thinking, keeping our heads, if you will, knowing the scriptures so we're not driven by our emotions, by the circumstance of our life, not driven by pressure, being able to be consistent and stable either un, even under dire situations such as maybe a, a disgruntled husband or a wife or one who's a non-believer or one who commits adultery on you or a wayward child or a daughter where you've got to deal with real life. It's nice to, uh, to ascertain and to examine the things here in an environment that's controlled and everything like a classroom, but then you've got to go home and do your homework. You've got to live life every day to do your homework completely, and that's very, very important. Um, there's to be watchful, alert, vigilant. And um, there, again, with the backdrop of the end of all things, and so prayer is not only just speaking to God and hearing God, but it speaks of depending on God. And so it's like a little child, you know, the minute they get up, they wake up, Mom! They're little. They depend on the mom for everything. They go to the kitchen, Mom, I need some milk. They go get, Mom, what am I going to wear? 
That's what God wants you and I to be like every day. Lord, what do you want me to do? Lord, where do you want me to go? Lord, should I get that? Should I not get that? And you don't have to kneel down and hold your hands to pray. You just, you're in conversation, okay? In an attitude of prayer, constantly. Prayers here is the word for prayers in general with the idea of worship and reverence, and it's always used of God, never of man. And the word um, that Jesus, Jesus used when he cleansed the temple was that. My uh, house, she called a house of prayer in Matthew 21, 13. Uh, they made it a den of thieves rather than being a place to seek God, to hear God. It was a place to merchandise the people of God. Uh, they would allow people to cut through the temple as a shortcut. You know, it's like people would want to come through here and go through here to go to the education rather than going all the way around, you know what I mean? Stuff like that. And of course, it would cost you a little money. And then they would merchandise the people when they brought their sacrifice. They would disqualify them. They'd have to buy the more expensive one. And every time you change your, your uh, money from the Hebrew to the Greek or the Greek to the Hebrew, they would take a little portion of it, right? Money changing is a good business. You just sit there in that window. If you keep changing it back and forth, you walk away with nothing. He has everything, of the whole, whatever it is that you're changing. It's great business. And so um, this word for prayer was used as a practice uh, to identify the practice of the church in Acts 1, 14 and 2, 14. They continue um, in, in, in prayer, uh, one accord, and they studied the word. They broke bread and fellowship, and, and they just were a light to the community. They were witnesses for Jesus. And so um, Peter, in chapter 3, verse 7, uses it for bad relationships of husbands and wives and how that hinders our prayers for God because as husband and wife, we are one. And we're to be um, loving to one another, forgiving to one another, and patient with one another. But that's the hardest place for you to be a Christian. To be a Christian with friends or wherever you work, that's easy. It's when you go home with your husband, your wife, your children, um, the people that know you best. That's where the tests come. And so now in verse 8 and 9, the spiritual mindedness of the believer towards believers in view of the return of Christ still. Um, the preeminence of love a believer is to manifest, he says, and above all things. Um, the adjective um, but continues the instruction. It does not make a contrast here again, moreover or then. And the principle of preeminence above all things is not at the exclusion of other things, but rather something to be present in and for all things we do or say. Um, if we give all our money to the poor, as the scripture says, or a body to be burned, if we don't have agape love, if that's not the motive behind it, it's worthless. God doesn't acknowledge it. Um, there being an urgent importance about what is going to be said here, about love and relationship to being serious and level-headed, watching in our prayers in view of the return of the Lord, affecting our lives towards those on the earth, the carryover value of earth while we're here. And the context is the people of God. The vertical relationship will always be the source of the horizontal again, very important 
And that's why it's a personal relationship you have with the Lord. You're the one that has to repent. You're the one that has to keep your life right with him. You're the one that has to draw from him. You're the one that has to ask him to fill you with the spirit. You're the one that has to study the word of God. You're the one that has to go to church. You're the one that has to serve in the church. You're the one that has to be that light and salt. Individually, collectively and corporately, we all are bound together, but it's individual responsibility. Still innate, notice the personal capacity of love is to manifest, be manifested by a believer, have fervent love for one another. And so he's talking about Christians um, expressing that love towards others. Um, the word have is a participle, having fervent love. In other words, not an imperative, but subordinate to the imperative, verse 1, and also goes back to the imperative, finally, all of you be of one mind, um, having compassion towards one another as brothers back in chapter 3, verse 8. This is to be the mutual thing, just like you brothers and sisters of the same family. You have the same father and mother. You should show your greatest love to each other before you love your neighbor or your friends. Uh, it's the same thing here, the family of God. We identify with the sufferings of Christ. It reveals we have ceased from sin and are like Christ-like as um, he said in verse 1. And the very fact that we have trouble uh, obeying, we have difficulty, it causes us a denial of self. It's evidence that we are trusting God to bring that about, that there has come a point where we have ceased to live for sin. Um, we as Christians no longer living for the lust of men, but the will of God, obedient to our new master and enabled by the new uh, nature that he's given to us by the Spirit of God. None of us would be bold enough to say, well, you know, I, 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 I did it myself. Um, Paul says, uh, apart from, Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing at all. And it's very, very important. Um, the believer is to be stretched beyond his human potential to the degree of divine love here. The word fervent has the idea of being stretched out put to full strain, exerting to its full capacity. In other words, it pushes us beyond our human abilities and it is trusting the divine ability that God gives us uh, through his grace. This word is found only one other time in this adjective form as prayer was made without ceasing the idea of being intense in Acts chapter 12 verse 5. Now Peter used it in a slight different form already in chapter 1 verse 22 and the word for love again remembers agape love, God's divine love that he imparts to every person at uh, their new birth. Uh, no non-believer can manifest agape love. Uh, there's uh, storge family love and that's expressed. There is um, uh, phileo, emotional friend compatibility, and we can do that. And there's even sexual love, and people are always seeking that. But it's agape love only by the believer. Now, when the believer is yielding to agape love, then that's going to um, purify and refine the emotional love, balance it so you don't abuse it. Uh, the um, eros, the sexual love, there's going to be behind a commitment for life. And so all these other, in the family of Storge, 
Again, agape will cause those other three loves that are naturally corrupted, make them blossom. You protect those loves because of the love that you see from Jesus Christ. And so the idea is the love of God that goes out of its way regardless of the difficulty and cannot be stopped. It is selfless, sacrificial. It is sufficient. Love works no will to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Uh, Romans 13, 10 tells us the definition of the potential of love is described, not definition really, it's description of the potential in 1 Corinthians 13. It ends, it says, it never fails. It endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things, it never fails. If I yield to it, when I've yielded to agape love, I've never failed. But when I have not yielded to agape love, I have failed every, every time. And that will never change. So it's up to me whether I'm going to yield or whether I'm going to just not yield. I can't blame anybody. That's my responsibility. Notice in 8 still the reciprocal directive of God, of love, is stated for one another. He's talking about the believer. The Christian life is a two-way street. Every believer is to have fervent love for the other believer. Um, you receive love. You also give love. You're not just a taker. So every believer is to know it's more blessed to give than to receive. In the world, the agenda is always, what can I get out of it? Why should I do that? In the Lord, you're the initiator of this as God directs and guides you without any expectation for return, to pay back. Sometimes Christians have the idea too, you know, if, if somebody invites you to their house for dinner, they automatically think, well, they're going to invite us to their house. It goes to show they're thinking carnally. And if you don't, they say, what kind of Christian are they? We invited them. Well, what would you have in mind? Does that mean he has to pay you back? Why did you do it? It's kind of embarrassing sometimes to be a Christian, isn't it? <laughs> but that's our carnality. It's ever-present. So the reciprocal directive of love is stated for one another. The motive of what God is uh, more interested in, and even Christians have corrupted this principle of agape love um, with quote-unquote Christian psychology that was introduced by Dr. Dobson and all the other quote-unquote Christian psychologists as they twisted the scripture and said, you have to love yourself before you can love others. The Bible does not teach that at all. That's what you do naturally as an unbeliever. You love yourself first, and because you can't get over yourself, you always stick loving yourself. There's not enough love for anybody else because you love you more than anybody else. And that's the problem. Our love is to love each other as God has loved us. Not to love myself first. That's a corruption of the scriptures. And how many Christians took that corrupted truth through the 70s to the 90s? Dobson was the golden calf on radio. 80 to 85% of the audience was women because they're the mommies with the kids at home, right? And though he has some neat stuff to say, you got to be careful. 
because there's not one aspect of psychology that's Christian. It's all humanistic philosophy. It's not biblical. Not at all. Because psychology begins with the premise that man is good. The Bible begins with the premise that man is evil. One is a false premise, the other one is a biblical true premise. Big difference where you end up. And so the reciprocal relationship is very clear throughout the epistles. We are to have fervent love, compassion, be hospitable, minister, be submissive to one another. Um, here in Peter chapter 1, 22, 3, 8, 4, 8, 4, 9, 4, 10, 5, 5. Go through the Bible. Get a concordance. Uh, you have a, 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 you know, a Bible program for computers today are crazy. And just put one another. You'll get all kinds of scriptures. How many one another's is there? And what are we to do in those one another's? Amazing. We are to greet one another with a holy kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. First Peter 5.14. But it didn't take long to, for that holy kiss to get corrupted. So they stopped doing it, right? <laughs> the, the church gets carnal, and so rules and regulations come in. No longer is a spirit control with accountability, but it becomes regimented, it becomes a state church, and it becomes dead. And so the end of eight there, the proficiency of love through the believer for love will cover a multitude of sins. Here we have a real potential of love that's amazing. The believer having um, fervent love as the priority of one for another will have a strong foundation to restore others from sin and not be disappointed or offended in its demands. And so every one of us is a debtor. Um, God has forgiven me for everything I ever did. I have a mutual obligation to forgive anybody when they ask forgiveness of me. Now, God will enable me to do that. And if someone asks forgiveness, then I am to impart that forgiveness. Now, I'm hoping that they're sincere. I'm hoping their motive is right. And so once I do that, I rest in the Lord and I let time run. And time is going to tell me whether they were truly sincere and repentant of that or not. Okay? And sometimes relationships have been tweaked so bad, maybe in a marriage, maybe in a father-son relationship or whatever it may be, that even though when someone asks you forgiveness, you impart it. You don't want nothing to do with that person because they're not trustworthy and you don't want to chance it. And though those are extreme cases, there are cases like that. And you're always open for God to deal with your heart and to reconcile it completely. But sometimes there, it, it, what's happened is, 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 is incredible. And so each person has that responsibility, but the potential of love is never to be questioned. Jesus forgave the thief on the cross. Jesus forgave the woman caught in adultery. Jesus forgave Paul the apostle for killing Christians. And so we have to be careful of all of that. And we have to ask God for wisdom and discretion as that happens. And so um, the kind of love is still the same, God's divine love, agape. Um, once again, only a child of God can manifest that, not a non-believer. The believer of his own free will chooses to deny, deny themselves 
love the other person more than themselves. He says, husband, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He who loves himself loves his own body. So in other words, the natural custom is to love me and my body. If I would love my wife the way I love me and my body, I would be loving my wife supremely. That's what Paul is teaching. So he takes the negative practice of the sinfulness of man and flops it over as an example to the positive aspect towards one another, especially to a wife or a husband. And he says, we will please God. And so, um, once again, it's a denial of self. Um, as debtors to the love of God and the forgiveness of God, and we want to impart that to, to others, uh, we know that we have passed from death to life, the scripture says, because we love the brethren. He who does not love his brother abides in death, 1 John 3:14. Those are pretty heavy words. So whenever there's some exception that you believe it is, you're the one responsible for that. But when someone asks us forgiveness, we are to impart that forgiveness. From the outside, it may seem like impossible. I would never do that. But God's not dealing with you. God is dealing with the person. As they yield to God, God is able to do it. The quote here is from Proverbs, from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew. Uh, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. Proverbs 10, 12. The text speaks of itself. The person who hates another will expose their sins to others as soon as they can to inflict shame and pain and suffering. But the person who loves a person will comfort them in their sin for repentance and conceal the sin of failure to save them shame, pain, and suffering, knowing they are forgiven, but not merely to conceal it without confronting the sin and seeking them to repent. Is that clear? Be careful that you don't become permissive to people in sin and say, well, you know, I don't know their heart. If you, you can see they're in sin, you need to call them to repent. The motive behind that is the love of God. Especially if they call themselves a Christian. When he says they tell you something, whatever they're in, whatever is going on in their life, I'm not going to broadcast it. If they have confided in you, then be a person of trust. You pray for them. You tell them what to do. Repent. You pray for them. You be there for them. But you're looking for repentance. If they're only listening to, if they only want to get a listening ear, that's not going to confront them. What's the biggest word today? Oh, I'm not judging you, bro. In the church and in the world. You better judge it. Is that what you say when you come to a red light, yellow light, green light? Well, I'm not going to judge it then. Really? You better judge it. You won't get home. And, and, and we're spineless today as a nation. We're cowards. By the destruction of absolute right and wrong, relativism destroys everything, absolutely everything. And so denying self, picking up our cross, following Jesus sometimes is denying ourselves in the most painful way when someone has hurt you so much and then 
They ask you your, their forgiveness. The phrase will cover means to hide or veil. The idea behind the word is like the Septuagint in the Hebrew that hinders the knowledge of things, marking purity of motive. Once again, you, um, your child fails. You, they confide in you. You keep that confidentiality. So there's trust between you. But you appeal to their repentance to flee from that sin so that they don't add destruction to their life. And that's very important. It's the same thing what he's talking about here. And um, sometimes people fall too much into the philosophy of the world and it becomes totally non-Christian with what they're teaching. It's a contradiction in itself. And so um, the word appears only seven other times in the New Testament. It's used of Paul for the gospel. If our gospel is hid, <clears throat> it is hid to those who are lost in 2 Corinthians 4.3 and other passages. The tense again is indicative future active. The person who is walking in fervent love towards other believers will be ready to, and willing to be God's instrument uh, to restore one from sin. Uh, that is natural love. Faith for the wounds of a friend. Deceive for the kisses of the enemy, Proverbs says. A friend's going to confront you. If you're in sin and someone doesn't confront you, they're not your friend. They're not your friend at all. A faithful friend will confront you in your sin. The enemy will give you kisses. He'll deceive you. He won't confront you. 1 Peter 3.10 says, For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. And so the potential of love through the believer is described as a multitude of sins. So in the context here, it's not just one. It means a great number. We get the word plethora from it. Use of multicolor at times of people. Angels, disciples in the scripture. And for all practical purposes, Peter is pointing out the sufficiency of agape love by the extreme case that would also include lesser matters of sin. But multitude of sins, things that have been done against a person. You take a husband and a wife and you take a non-believing husband or non-believing wife and the endurance of a believer throughout years and years, decades, and the things that are done and said. And then all of a sudden, one day, that husband or that wife, 30, 40 years later, gets saved. And they say, "Hun, please forgive me for everything I did to you. A multitude of sins. Things that are very personal. Things that tear your heart apart. And this is the case that he's talking about. Amazing. But agape love never fails. Again, if I yield to it, I seek the Lord. I walk with him. I have to look to him completely. So Peter was saying the believer denies and extends himself for the sake of reconciling sinning brothers or sisters or the non-believer uh, to come to Christ that they would be one in fellowship. 
the principal deed of love, notice in verse 9 now, towards God's family. Be hospitable to one another. The word hospital means uh, made up of two words here. Uh, philos, of phileo love, which means friend or friendly, and um, wishing them well, foreigner or a stranger uh, or an alien. So the compound word means to be a friend to strangers or guests, being generous. The word appears in this form three times in the New Testament. It's used two other times as an adjective for one of the requirements of bishops to be hospitable in 1 Timothy 3.2 and Titus 1.8, to be friendly. Uh, some Christians, they want people to be friendly to them, but they're not friendly to others. They have a one-way street which declares they're carnal. They're living like the world. We all knew people who always showed up at, at the party and they came to drink your beer, right? To tear up your house, but they didn't bring anything. <laughs> then you have the same thing with Christians sometimes because they're carnal, right? And so it's important that we, um, we understand our responsibility to um, be hospital to each other. Now, you cannot be like that to everybody in the church, specifically if it's a big church and that. But you can become friends with a group of people in the church where, in fact, as your kids are growing up, you become very close and you share times together and picnics and sometimes even go on vacation. And, and you grow up 14, 15, 20, 30 years. And, and you're very giving and very generous to each other. Um, it might be a handful of people, it might be 10 people, it might be 20 people, but you can't do it to 500 or 1,000, right? It's common sense. But yet, the minute we realize we're both Christians, there's a compatibility because we have the same Lord. And there's a love for one another, though we may not know each other. I don't have to know your past. I need to know your present. Are you a Christian? Have you repented? Are you walking with God? Do you love the Word of God? Do you love your Lord? That's what I need to know. I don't need to know anything else about you. <laughs> it's none of my business. That's important. Now Peter is thinking of those believers in need due to the time that they were living, not just mere fellowship. They were being persecuted. Very, very difficult time. Those who have suffered the loss of material things under persecution are referred to in the book of Hebrews, <clears throat> chapter 10, verse 32 to 34. And the author, which I believe is Paul, he says, Have you forgotten that you suffer all those things, the material loss and everything, for the love of the Lord and the saints, and now you're going to throw it all away? And he rebukes them to an extent. It says, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warned and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. What does that profit? James 2.16. Now, if you take that literally for every person, you wouldn't have anything, would you? So you've got to go to the Lord and say, Lord, what would you have me to do? Who is it that you want me to help? Who is it that you want me to give when there's a need? You can't do it to everybody. 
It's impossible. It doesn't happen. But we have to make sure it's not just an attitude that we just say it and then we never do it. It sounds good, but there's no practical rubber meets the road kind of theology, which is very, very important. Those who were traveling preachers, teachers, um, 3 John chapter 1 there, verse 4 through 8, speaks about helping the um, itinerant preachers who were going around ministering the gospel in those days. As you know, um, many of the ends of that day were flea-infested, and they were house of ill repute, many different things. And so people would open up their homes, even when they had Passover and the three feasts. Um, Jerusalem would swell with population to the millions, a couple of millions or so. And people would open up their homes, have people stay there, um, and they would extend their love for them. And so the reciprocal responsibility to impart blessing is mutual, one another. All believers are to be kind and generous uh, to other believers. All believers are to not um, uh, value things more than people. We're to use things and value people, not use people and value things. That's a worldly concept. And so the benefit of receiving blessing is also mutual. Um, and we have to keep that in mind. Uh, the purity, notice verse 9, of the need of love is uh, stated without grumbling. Peter reminds a believer about their sin nature that is still present, uh, still having the ability to manifest the works of the flesh. Um, grumbling, uh, it means secret debate, displeasure, um, not openly uh, stated. Um, though they are born again, they have again sin nature. We have to be careful. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Peter reminds the believer of the potential loss of reward in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, um, chapter 3, 14 through 60. I mean Paul, not Peter, at the Bema seat of Christ um, because God's going to judge for the motive of the heart, why and, and how we did it, and not so much how much we did. Um, very, very important. Once again, going back to Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart of man is deceitful, desperately wicked. And so it's the source of all evil. Jesus Christ said the same thing in Matthew 15, 19. Now look at verse 10 and 11. The spiritual mindset of the believer to minister to each other according to the gifts, their calling, are in view here in view of the return of Jesus. Peter moves from the specific service in verse 8 and 9 to the general service of 10 and 11. Here in 10, the accountability of every believer for their gift of the Holy Spirit, each one has received a gift. And so um, the measure is indicated by the word cathos. It means proportion or according to the degree. So the implication being that every person who is born again receives a gift, at least one gift, possibly more than one gift, but at least one gift. And you can look at 1 Corinthians, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14, Ephesians 4, and this verse right here. And every person has gifts by which they are called to serve the Lord. God is the one who directs you. God is the one who calls you. God is the one who enables you. The word receive simply means to lay hold of, to possess, being born again. The tense again is indicative errors. Those that much is given, much more is required, the gift to charismata. And so in other words, the divine gift, supernatural gifts. These are not abilities or talents. 
This is not what you've learned, what you've trained for. This is the gifts of God that are listed for us. When you went through the new believers, you studied all the different gifts of the Spirit. Uh, they're supernatural, not learned abilities or natural talents. Um, they are operated by God whenever he wills. All of the gifts, the only gift that man can turn on and turn off is the gift of tongues, if you have it. All the other gifts are sovereignly operated by God when he wills and how he wills through who he wills. But your gift of tongues is your own. You can turn it on. You can turn it off. Paul said, I can pray in the Spirit. I can pray with my understanding also. So most likely, Paul could pray in Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, and maybe other languages. But then he also could pray in tongues, his divine language. Okay? And he makes that very clear in Corinthians. And so um, the suppose behind, uh, the purpose behind the gift of the Holy Spirit imparting to the believers to minister to one another. Notice once again, it's for others, not simply for ourselves. Um, the word minister, diacono, means to be a servant. It's used for domestic uh, servants and deacons of the church. Pastors are called ministers, servants of God, same word, a deacon, um, one who serves. Um, the gift is for the benefit of the members of the body, not primarily for self, um, the motivation behind the gifts are agape love. This is illustrated beautifully in the many parts of the body that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 12, the hands, the feet, and all of it. God is the one who assigns these things. And all your parts of your body, they work in conjunction with the commands of the head. This hand has never moved on its own. Then This hand has never made the decision, I think I'll scratch the head. The head tells it. Scratch the head. Put on your shoes. Jesus is the one who operates the parts of the body to administrate the gifts of the Spirit. And so um, the proof of being led by the Spirit is to serve with the Spirit, with the gifts of the Spirit, and not thinking that we are sufficient in ourselves. So the proper administration of the gifts of the Holy Spirit is as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Notice that. And so the proper perspective of self is their service to the body. Uh, as stewards, the word stewards is made up of two words, oiko, house, and namos, law. And the word identifies a house distributor, a dispenser or superintendent responsible for all the domestic affairs of the home. It's found 10 times in the New Testament the master, the proprietor, entrusted all to the manager, all his affairs, and he had to increase them. And the thing of it is, none of them were his. All the things belonged to his master, but he was responsible to multiply them. Jesus gave many parables to demonstrate that very clearly. And the steward was educated, by the way. He wasn't someone that wasn't educated, having great abilities and benefits for his master um, entrusted to him, multiplying them, and returning that multiplication of goods. Moreover, it's required that a steward be found faithful. 1 Corinthians 4, 2 tells us. And so the steward is qualified by the word good, excellent, useful, suitable, 
admirable. Speaking of nature and character here. It's used for good fruit, for good ground, for the good seed. Peter uses it and has used it earlier, having your conduct honorable in 1 Peter 2.12. Same word. And so the proper perspective about any gift imparted to the believer by God is indicated by the word multiple, uh, manifold grace of God. So in other words, God is the one who administrates this, and his grace is sovereign, and it's perfect. The manifold is the vari variated colors to, uh, to declare and describe the multiplicity of the gifts and the multiplicity of methods the way he administrates them. One can administrate the gift of evangelism through just one-on-one -on -one witnessing, uh, one maybe in music or whatever it may be. There's different ways that each gift can be manifested. And so it's important that we let the Lord direct and guide us. Um, and so grace here is unmerited favor and is used synonymous with the gifts in the context here. Uh, like that steward, nothing belonged to him. Again, it was given to him and he was responsible to administrate it properly and for the right motives. Look at 11 there. The believer is responsible to speak only in accord with the word of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. The instruction includes all believers. If anyone, the person uh, possessing the vocal gifts of the spirit here, this is the context. The word speak means to utter a voice, articulate a word. It's found 295 times in the New Testament. This includes the gift of tongues, interpretation, prophecy, preaching, a word of knowledge, a word of wisdom, teaching, and exhortation. Those are all the vocal gifts. This is the word that's described. The tense is indicative, present, active. It's speaking of the present as well as the future. And so the apostle Peter has used the word for those speaking deceit in chapter 3, verse 10. The standard for speaking is very clear. According to the word of God. Um, I feel that those men who get behind the pulpit and simply speak what they want from the word of God without studying, without any sense of accountability to what they're saying, um, that they're going to be shocked when they stand before the judgment of God. So if we're going to speak, we do it according to the word of God. The phrase oracle of God means an utterance um, and feels God. So the two words... Um, the general title of the Godhead. Um, this indicates bringing words from God, the words spoken by God, known as the scriptures. That's the plumb line. We judge everything according to the word, uh, not our own understanding. It's divine revelation. The phrase oracles of God is found four times in the New Testament in Acts 7, 38, Romans 3, 2, and Hebrews 5, 12. So it's another expression for God's word. Notice the believer is responsible in leaven there to serve only according to the enabling of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. The instruction again is to every believer. Minister, diacono again, the present active tense, in the present or in the future. So only as God enables me 
Um, it's used for serving widows in the church in Acts 6.2 and 1 Timothy 3.10. The empowerment for serving according to God's power. The ability means force or strength. Ephesians 1.19 says the same thing. The word is used for the power of God before putting on the entire armor of God in Ephesians 6.10. Once again, it's not dependent on human strength or ability. Um, the word supplies means uh, to be a chorus leader or one to own that expense. He would flip the bill for the whole thing. Um, much is said about money and more than that needs to be said in churches. When if we teach the word of God and if God has called it and God has anointed the ministry, then God's going to take care of the rest. You feed the flock of God. You do not fleece the flock of God. You don't need to pressure people and you don't need to tell them how great you are and how privileged they are to sit under you. It's just amazing to me when I hear some pastors on radio or television. It's amazing to me. They have no fear of God. And so the phrase, the ability which God supplies, parallels speak as the oracles of God. Notice there 11 still the purpose for ministering according to the gifts and ability that God provides. Uh, receives, God receives the glory, not the instrument. This is in all things God may re be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so it's a purpose clause. It's called a henna clause that um, the believer is a mere instrument. He's the vessel. The one to receive the glory is God. And I, as the instrument, are supposed to make sure that God gets the glory, that we do not bring attention to ourselves, but we point to Jesus Christ. The end result is that God is the one uh, that's working through the individual, and the individual is very clear on this, and therefore he points people to the Lord, not to himself. Um, this is a doxology expressing the admiration and praise of God. Um, to receive all the glory in all things. And the word glorified means to think or supposed to be an opinion. The context refers to the honor of God here, to render him excellent, to celebrate, to be praised, and to be worshipped so that people are in awe of God, not of you, not of me. And so... This is a very basic principle. And notice it's through Jesus Christ, the Trinity, all three are affected in everything that's going on, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, God the Son, the second person, um, the incarnation, the channel. The Father's the source, the Son's the channel, and the Holy Spirit is the agent to work through all this. Uh, they're all in conjunction, the whole um, Godhead is working for the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, depending on who's acting uh, on the life of believers. Um, notice to whom is reflexive, pointing back to God the Father. So the glory here is talking about the glory of the Father in this context. He's to receive all the glory. There's other verses that say Jesus is to get the glory. It's not a contradiction. It's whatever the context is going on. Right now, he's talking to whom is reflected back to the Father. 
He's receiving glory through the Son, but the glory is for the Father. Very important here, okay? Easy to miss. Again, the glory, the praise, the honor, the worship, the strength um, is to God uh, forever, which means unbroken ages, perpetuity of time, eternity. And the entire doxology, again, is affirmed to be true by the word amen, so be it. When it's placed at the end, it means amen, so be it. When it's put in the beginning of a sentence, the same word, it says verily, verily, truly, truly, pay attention, what I'm going to say is very important. So it's the position and the grammar that gives the proper emphasis and interpretation to this word. Amen. It's the only word that is pronounced the same in every language. Amen, amen, whatever it is. There's no interpretation of it. Mexicans say amen. Americans say amen. Muslims or anybody else, they'll say the same word. Amen. The only word that's universal. So be it. And so, um, important lessons here to understand that under our sufferings, our persecutions, our distresses, our anxieties, that we not forget that we're here for those who are lost, that we not forget that we're here to pray for each other, to pray with each other, to be sensitive to each other, the Spirit of God, through the gifts of God. And as we gather together, we are that light, we're that salt for each other, for our children, for our wives, for our husbands, for the lost community. So many people under fear today with this COVID thing. So many people believing so many lies, so much misinformation. And then the propaganda that's on and on on television over and over again about the vaccines, about this, about that. They give you a, a, a website to find out the truth about the vaccine. Well, they're, they're going to give you what they're saying about it. Get on the YouTubes. Look at, listen to some of those doctors that are opposing the so-called vaccine. And why? Because it's not a vaccine. If you get that vaccine, you still have to wear a mask, according to them. You still medically can get COVID again. If it was a true vaccine, you would not get COVID. Okay? Simple. It's never been tested. It's never been licensed. It's being tested right now through the guinea pigs of people. There's no telling the ramifications of that RNA and the other things that are in it. And so make your decision carefully, thoughtfully, and search it out through scientific truth, not political propaganda. Very, very important. Lord, we worship you. We thank you for your grace, your love, and goodness. We love you. We thank you for your love for us, Lord, and we pray that we would pray for one another, we would uh, love one another, and the Lord, you would use us for your glory in the area of Pasadena, wherever we're at, Lord. And so, Lord, we thank you for this morning, the people you brought for tonight, and we just lift our church to you. Protect us. Watch over us, Lord. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent if you don't know him. If you're out there on the Internet, God has allowed you to listen to the gospel, to understand your lostness and your need of Christ to be forgiven of your sins. But only you can make that decision. 
And so Jesus always asks for public confession. If you confess me before man, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. But if you deny me, I will deny you. It was a straight up message. You don't need any interpretation for that at all. And as you make that confession, you're asking him to forgive you and he will give you a new divine nature. He will bury your sins in the deepest ocean. He will make you his child by grace through faith. Not because you deserve it, not because I deserved it, but because I agreed with God that I'm a sinner in need of salvation and forgiveness. And he's the only one that can impart that to us. So if you want to be born again, this is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.